as explained earlier by the wonderful cat with a K, um, we are in the middle of a series around carols called Something Worth Singing About. And the reason we're doing this is because um, the Advent story is quite amazing and quite provocative um, and quite dangerous and quite subversive, but has just been tamed over the centuries into this kind of like lovely kind of animal, um, what's the word beginning with C, where you have like animals together? It's an animal, I'm looking for Rod here. Not corral, oh. menagerie, no, it starts with M. There's another one. No, not a sound, not like, coo. Anyway, we'll edit this bit out. Um, club, <laughs> club, an animal club. Corroboree, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, Pat. See, we thought he decided to get his tea very, very late, and we thought about kicking him out of the church, but I'm really glad we didn't now because he does have value. Yeah, Sophie is praising Jesus for Pat. As am I. As am I. Anyway, an animal club. (laughs) Which reminds me, yesterday we were like in a thrift shop or an op shop or a second-hand store, depending on what you want to call them, and Meg was like, oh, you should go and see if you can get any children's books for Hemi, if there's any good ones here. And I'm like, okie dokie. And so we wandered off. I had Hemi strapped to me in a front pack, not just with rope um, that would burn. And we went to the book section, and there was, like, no, like, little, little kids' books. Like, all the books are ones that he would, like, tear parts off and put in his mouth. Um, but there was this one book called Hemi and the Pet. What are the chances? It's not even a very popular name in New Zealand, or very common name in New Zealand, let alone, like, finding a book elsewhere, and it was about this little boy um, called Hemi, and his little, it was, his little sister um, came to school with him, even though she was too young, and then she, um, then they had pet day, this is, this is the link here, pets, they had pet day, we, which is kind of like a pet club, and you'd bring your pet along, but Hemi didn't have a pet, so Rata, who is his little sister, said, you can take me as your pet, because you love me and look after me, and so he won most original pet at pet day. Um, after, there's, of course, there's some conflict and crisis in the story, after some of the other children tried to say that she wasn't a pet because she wasn't furry, neither is the goldfish, said Hemi. But he, she doesn't have a tail like the goldfish, neither does the gerbil, said Hemi. So he's quite the orator. Very, very good deductive arguments there. So again, we'll edit all of that out because no one cares, but I thought it was nice. Um, so we are talking about carols. And we've got carol lovers, carol, carol haters, and carol indifference people this morning. Um, but what we're hoping for is um, that something in the story would be able to transform us. Um, believing in things is all very nice, but unless we come out different off the back of that belief or off the back of that relationship, then it's all rather pointless. I don't really want to gather every Sunday um, with a group of people who believe the same things. I'd much rather gather every Sunday with people who are continually to be transformed into something. Um, And I am of the opinion that there's enormous transformative power 
in the story if we can work our way past um, cattle like stomping in time. Um, so we all know that singing ironically is easy, but um, is there anything in this tacky mess that um, we can sing with gusto about? Um, is there anything that we can grab hold of that might actually change the way that we live? And that's what we're going to try and do throughout this series. So Rod talked last week about um, Mary, and we're going to carry on with Mary. I, list, I wasn't here, but I listened to the podcast, and the discussion was um, Mary. The discussion was M- Mary. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Sue, Susie's gone three minutes without butting in, so <laughs> she had to play her part. <laughs> She's off to Peter Monday's she'll be back soon. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> he talked about Mary, um, and the discussion was absolutely phenomenal. I just so appreciated the richness that came out of this community, and um, no doubt the continued discussions afterwards. Um, so we're going to carry on with Mary this week, and um, possibly next week, as, oh, and definitely next week as well. Um, but uh, we got a little reading first, so I'm going to get Harriet um, to come and read for us. It's currently signing to Sophie, so it's very involved. Oh, yeah, for Sophie. Yeah, well, there's going to be some words on the screen, so it'll help. Yeah. Um, now, it's very small, because I wanted to get it all on at once. Um, but So you can just kind of like squint and listen to Harriet at the same time. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfil promises, his promises to her. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His name extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought rulers down from their thrones but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Thank you. So this, uh, that little um, song, which Harriet was supposed to sing, but um, that's opted for speaking. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> That's coming at the end, so if you can work on a little ditty. Um, that song's called The, the Magnificat, and um, it has been treasured for good reason in tr- Christian tradition. And I want to talk more about The Magnificat and Mary um, as time goes on, but first I want to deal with Judas, um, as you do. Um, I want to talk about Judas, um, or at least the name Judas, because um, it matters in this context. Ricky Gervais has this great piece in, I can't remember which... Stand up it was. But in one of them talking about um, the name Adolf, and he was like, oh, old Adolf. You don't hear of many Adolfs around anymore, do you? He killed that name right dead. And I used to think, I used to think the same about Judas, 
about like how many Judases there were around post-Judas Iscariot in Christian tradition. Um, and I used to remember reading the Bible and feeling really sorry for the other disciple called Judas, um, which appears in, he appears in Luke, um, in Luke's list of disciples. And just thinking like, oh, like what a name to have to kind of like carry on like post um, crucif- crucifixion, like uh, Judas the disciple. Oh, no, no, the other one, the other one. Um, and just to think about like, like just, yeah, just how, how awkward that would have been. Um, but with a bit of research, Judas was actually an incredibly common name um, among young Galilean men um, of Jesus' era, all because of another Judas called Judas Maccabeus. And Judas Maccabeus was a uh, uh, um, revolutionary um, warrior messiah figure in, um, in Jewish history who in the intertestamental period um, got absolutely sick of the, um, the, the, the Greek empire um, coming and pillaging and um, desecrating the temples, that he led a, a famous Jewish uprising and with very few men managed to kind of kick the Greeks out and hold all of Judea for a hundred years before they were subsequently crushed by um, the incoming army. But a hundred years of revolution. And um, there was this um, sense within the people of Israel who were incredibly desperate. They were in their own land, but they were now occupied by the Roman Empire to the Greeks. And um, they had the sense that somehow God, again, was going to raise up a warrior like Judas Maccabeus. He was going to be um, a warrior king who would finally kick the Romans out and set the world to rights, and, um, and that the Jewish people would finally overcome. And um, so, so amongst um, children... There were Judases everywhere because so many um, mothers and fathers hoped that their son son, um, would be born and would lead an uprising and finally um, bring the world to order. So there was Judases all over the place. And so this kind of hope that Mary had of um, that, that perhaps her son would be the Messiah was a very common one among a desperate and downtrodden people. And it was part of this prophetic tradition that we find throughout Scripture of part of the Jew- woven into the Jewish narrative is this idea, um, this strange kind of bent towards the underdog and the despised. And we're so used to this idea in our world now that um, that you know of the, of the kind of the battler, the underdog, the um, the the dignity of the underprivileged, the um, the sacredness of the poor. We're, we're so familiar with these ideas and concepts that we barely even know that once upon a time they were foreign. Um, and we're so used to this narrative that we barely even think about the role that Jesus had to play in bringing that um, narrative, bringing that, um, that view about in Western culture. Um, this idea of, um, of the underdog, of the um, poor uprising, of subversiveness, of resistance, all of these things were incredibly foreign to the Greco-Roman world at the time. Um, They had the exact opposite view than the Jewish narrative. And so the Greco-Roman narrative was the idea that the gods had ordered the universe and placed the people at the top for a reason, and other people at the bottom for a reason, um, until people stopped actually becoming people um, and weren't really worth peopleness at all. And that in this great hierarchy, um, the gods had chosen a few people who were kind of nearing divinity 
um, to sit at the top of this great pyramid. And everyone was just kind of fated to where their position in society fell. And so if you were born um, a barbarian or a savage, you were just a barbarian or a savage. If you were born a nobleman, then you were inherently um, more rational, more human, more divine, more better, more everything than everybody else. And because the gods had set this order in place, resisting this was sacrilege. And so the idea of, um, of trying to change someone's station, the idea of giving to a poor person so much that they actually rose out of poverty was not just stupid, but it was also heretical as well. To try and change someone's station, to give someone more dignity than the gods had given them, was a direct affront to the gods. You were essentially saying that I believe that the way that you've ordered this universe is wrong, which you wouldn't do. And so central to the Greco-Roman world is this idea of stasis, that everything should be and remain the same. The only people who ever had the possibility of of actually creating change were the people at the very, very top of the pyramid, the very, very top who represented the gods themselves. They could create small increments of change, but even so, the kind of change that they brought about would never um, result in trying to change someone's station because that would be resisting the gods. Um, So the fabric of the universe was bent towards the powerful. The closer to the top you got, the more divine you were, or what we might call the more human you were. The further down the chain you go, you begin to lose your humanity. You begin to lose your place before um, the gods. You begin to lose your place in the structure of society until, you know, not very far down the the chain, the difference between you and an animal is really negligible. Um, You have, you know, the the same rights as an animal, but definitely not the same rights as what we'd call a human. Um, and so everyone knew that the son of God in, in, um, in first century Palestine was Caesar. So the son of God is, a, you, know, it, it, you know, kind of got co-opted into a Christian term, but it was originally a political term for essentially saying um, Caesar, um, Julius Caesar died and Caesar Augustus um, became, uh, and, and then was divinized, divinized? It's got to be a better way of saying that. Um, is that right? Deified? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll go with deified because at least I know how to say it. Um, he, he, he became a god, and then his um, adopted son became um, the, 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 the son of God. And so this was a kind of a political statement in a way of saying that um, the person who sits at the top of our hierarchy now um, represents and reflects the gods, and therefore whatever moves they make, um, they, can't, they can't be resisted. They are on behalf of the very fabric and structure of the universe and so should be obeyed without question and resistance is futile. If you want to know what the gods are like, how the universe is meant to be, just look at Caesar, look at the king. So the universe is geared towards the triumph of the truly human and the truly human are the powerful, the chosen, and the insiders. And so this had huge ethical implications. Um, Because of this, because of this idea, because of this assumed worldview, colonizing foreign nations, crushing savages, enslaving outsiders, they're all completely moral choices to make. 
um, they're barely worth batting an eyelid for. The idea of kind of collateral damage barely existed because you're kind of crushing these people, but they're not actually really people. And it's all according to the will of the gods so that the powerful can become more powerful and the great glory of Rome, which um, reflects the glory of the gods, um, if, as long as that keeps on expanding, then the, the world is the way it's meant to be. So these kind of core ideas of empathy of other, um, they just don't really exist in any form that we know them. After all, everything that is done is done because the gods have chosen it to happen. And as Rome proved time and time again, resistance is futile. And so if you were to ask the question of whose side the gods were on and which way the universe bends, what's the trajectory of the universe? Stasis, the same. That's what's going to happen to the universe in the Greco-Roman world, that there'll be cycles over and over again, but there'll essentially be repetitions of the same thing happening over and over again where the powerful remain powerful because they are the chosen and the downtrodden, well, they're barely worth thinking about, but they're there essentially to feed the powerful and that's the way the world was supposed to be. So subversion, revolution, change, all of these things in in Greco-Roman thought were to be resisted because they were an affront to the gods. Enter Mary's song. Enter... The Magnificat. Have a read again. What do you hear in the song? Who is favored? Who gets dignity? And how's the fabric of the universe shaped? If you want, you can have a little chat at your table. If you're on a table full of introverts, you can all pass. Well, just give you a couple of minutes and have a go. Um, who's favoured? Who gets dignity? How is the fabric of the universe shaped in the song? Whose side is God on? Cool. Would anyone's table like to chip in? Well, not the actual table, just people on it, preferably. Still have some standards around here.
they're all pri they're all private thoughts. Are you pointing someone else out, that, um, Jackie? That's actually not kosher, but we'll allow it. We were just looking at um, Mary's capacity to be able to conceptualise one person changing generations and what that meant for the society. Um, yeah, and how Jesus was seen as a political, like how political he was expressing. Yeah, absolutely. Any more tables? I was just thinking like, she so easily could have been like, oh, God, I'm, I'm such a lowly person. Why would you do this to me? But, like, she kind of gets through it. Like, she gets this whole thing about God, you know, what you need to give to the poor and hungry. So I'm just wondering, like, what, would she, what was she listening to? Um, was she going to synagogue and hearing these scriptures, I guess, under the Torah? I guess. But, yeah, I guess I'm like, how did she get it? Um, we talked about the kind of um, the language used, which I guess is quite um, vengeful is not perhaps the right word, but well, revolutionary, I suppose, and that it's not just <coughs> not just saying that she'll her people will be raised up, but also there's other people who will be brought down, which is that them fighting words. Them's are them's are fighting words. I was just wondering, who who was writing this down when she was saying it? Like, who was it? How do we know she said this? So there's a magical dictaphone, <laughs> a magical dictaphone from on high. <laughs> we'll answer that question in another series. Any more? She's nuts, but she refused to speak. <laughs> oh, I was just, no, 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 it was private thoughts. Okay, so we just observed that it's a different inversion of everything. Somebody brought up the idea <laughs> that um, we, that what we see in politics and at the moment is destructive and is offensive and is something that Satan is after, even though this idea of inclusivity of the downtrodden has kind of permeated our culture a bit. And it's not our natural resting state. Perhaps we've got to consciously Yes. Yes, 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 yes. I that that sentiment there of it's not our it's not our natural state. It's, it's a really interesting idea where we stand right now with the slow loss of Christendom, which I'm not particularly grieving, <laughs> but the stories that so much of our society are founded on as they fade into the distance have to be replaced by other stories. And this is one of the challenges I think that, I mean, we'll get to Nietzsche soon, <laughs> Nietzsche soon, but that 
a post-Christian world faces is, to, is the assumption is to go, all of these ideas, the kind of goodness and kindness and charity and all these kind of things, they've always existed, and we all know they're real and true, and, and that's our kind of basic state. We don't need Christianity anymore to tell us those things because we just kind of know they are. Um, not necessarily. Those stories have been, that those beliefs and those transformations have been fueled by something. And I think one of the challenges, and Elaine Dipaton, one of my favorite atheists, gets to this of saying, we don't, atheism doesn't yet have the resources and the structures to foster this kind of good. And it needs to do a hell of a lot of work before it can even get near Christianity's ability to foster those things because they aren't givens. They, the, the, the inherent right and dignity of all humanity wasn't a reality for a long, long, long time, for the majority of human history. So assuming that it's just a good idea and therefore it makes sense to everyone always um, isn't necessarily true and is usually and has been fostered by story. Um, so we'll get to that in another week, but mm, by way of commentary. Okay, we'll take a couple more. Um, I just found it really curious that line, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And was just thinking that the concept of fearing God for me has always been something that's really um, incomprehensible. Like, I just don't really know what that even means. And, like, in my mind, in some senses, like, people like the Pharisees trigger me as people who would, like, fear God. Um, and so I feel like they would pride themselves on that as, like, an identification of themselves. And yet here it's saying those people uh, receive his mercy, except throughout the Gospels we don't really see the Pharisees being super favorable in Jesus' eyes. So, yeah, no, that's just an interesting kind of tension for me is like what that actual phrase fear God means and how does that relate to um, sitting in this triangle slash subverted triangle system? Yeah. So one of the things we face with this is that where did Mary get this from? <laughs> this is very much a flow-on from the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament. So this is a part of the Jewish narrative. What happens to this post-Jesus is really interesting as well, though, because there is some stuff in here, as you point out, Josh, that in the context of Jesus, you wonder how that actually plays out. And I'd argue that Jesus actually transforms the Jewish pr- prophetic tradition again, but we might need to talk about that in a later week. Um, any final comments? Um, yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a, co- a tentative pen wave here. Um, I was just thinking when you were saying before about what Christianity has to offer in terms of not assuming those values were always present, those ideas about, yeah, human work. But, yeah, it just struck me that we're in a point in time where a version of Christianity that's really prominent is actually fueling a really problematic narrative, like Syrians are basically 
being treated like animals and being given the consideration of animals and being painted in a picture that they're to be feared. Um, so, yeah, I would say that even though we've got these ideas about human worth, we're still definitely, like what Nat said, operating in a way that wants to keep going with a certain, you know, um, level of comfort and privilege and with others. And, yeah, and that the Christian narrative doesn't seem to have a big enough voice in terms of value-adding. It seems to be fueling, you know, in the States, a Donald Trump kind of universal acceptance of Christianity. Cool. We might rest there. Oh, do we need one more? Please. Well, on that um, fear of the Lord, just looking up for the sorry, quick, quick Google search, but um, <laughs> Hebrew for Christians. Um, but the word fear in many versions of the Bible comes from the Hebrew yira, which has a range of meanings. Sometimes it refers to fear that we feel in anticipation of danger, but it can also mean awe and reverence. In this sense, yira includes the idea of wonder, amazement mystery, astonishment, gratitude, admiration, and even worship. And I think if you interpret it like that, then God showing the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom and work, like walking in the fear of the Lord, that makes much more sense, like almost reverence to God. And in that, I'd say that the Pharisees didn't actually fear God because they showed more reverence to sort of appearances and things like that and not to actually God himself. Very good. Last, 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 last one. I can't, I can't say no to Kat. Um, just, I have two things to say, but I'll make them really quick. <laughs> the, um, the, the, the Pharisees thing, I think actually um, Jesus, a, a simplistic reading of what Jesus was saying could potentially be he didn't favour the Pharisees. But actually I think, I mean, he hung out with them all the time, all the time. Like, they're always there. They're in every story. He speaks directly to them every time. So I think, actually, um, he desperately wanted to engage with that that life, that life of, of rules where perhaps the, the, the wonder of God had been lost um, and spoke to directly into that a lot of the time in in the stories that we have of him. Um, So I don't know if it's necessarily about um, favouring or or telling them that they were going to go to hell or or whatever. It was more more about trying to engage with that and, and, and open up their minds that had been forced into a structure that didn't really reflect who God was, um, and da, 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 segue, um, <laughs> uh, everything that you were saying before about the Roman Empire, you could quite easily replace it with the British Empire, and instead of using the um, pantheistic religion of Romans, British Empire using Christianity to justify everything that they did in the world, the effects of which we are still seeing today. Um, and that, again, is that kind of really structured, narrow, narrow thinking. Anyway, that's it. And Amy's side comment of Western imperialism and superiority. Yes, 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 yes. 
Now we're getting places. So, one of our challenges here is to keep on as a community, as a church, as people who follow Jesus, um, see through ideologies and see through belief systems and try and find Jesus in them, whether they call themselves Jesus following or not. Um, in this, he has filled the hungry with good things. What would the Greco-Roman world say about this? He filled the hungry with good things. What a waste of time. What a waste of good food. The only reason you fill the hungry with good things is if you can get them to work for you and pay more taxes to fuel the empire. Mary's subversive song says, no, no, he fills the hungry with good things because that's the way the world is meant to be. Whose side is God on? God is on the side of the hungry and the poor and the marginalized. And then Jesus comes and transforms this even further to say God might even be on the side of your enemies. The most despised, the sinful ones, that God is on their side. And as soon as you try and elevate one person above another, God sweeps in and says, no, the universe was not meant to be that way. The early church lived and died over the phrase, Jesus is Lord, because it was a direct challenge to saying, Caesar is Lord. Back in the day, you could worship whatever God you chose, and the Roman Empire was incredibly gracious. They would allow you to carry on your local savage tribal customs, worship yet another God, didn't bother them particularly, as long as you confessed that all of your gods were subservient to Caesar, the one at the top of the pyramid. Of course, Jews and Christians couldn't do this. Jesus and Caesar are profoundly different kinds of kings. A crucified Messiah, a cursed king, a savior that took the form of a slave. This completely undermines the assumed order of the world. If we look at joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive his king, her king. What kind of king are we hoping to receive here? The king who took the form of a slave, which would probably be better called the anti-king, the un-king. To me, this story is worth holding on to because it's profoundly transformative and incredibly challenging for all of us little empire builders, wherever we find ourselves. In light of what we've just discussed, I want you to have a look at this song and ask yourself, what is worth singing with gusto? For you, what is worth singing with gusto in this? What narrative is transformative in this? What stands out? Again, we're going to wrap up really soon, but I'll give you, look at my invisible watch and give you two two minutes and three freckles. 
to have a quick chat at your table and ask what's transformative in this song, what's worth singing with gusto. All righty. Has anyone got anything worth singing about that like to like to share? Um, for me, like verse 2, the um, rocks, hills, and plains stuff, I can probably sing with more gusto because um, for me, even though that's like very spiritualized there, the created world and the natural world in, in its interest, intricacy and complexity has always been really enthralling. And like I really resonate with that idea of like seeing the divine through creation and seeing the divine through the world. And so I could probably sing that with gusto. The bit that stands out to me is he rules the world with truth and grace and we don't really see much truth or grace in the rulers of our world today. Yeah, the idea of a king that, and the wonders of his love, the idea of a king that loved in that context or even in ours, beyond propaganda is barely imaginable. (laughs) That we would receive the king, not because the the king is forcing us to receive the Lord by might, but the king that we have to receive, the king that's coming lowest ranks. Beautiful. Behind me. Oh, it's Sneaky Rod sneaking up behind me. It's like Panto. I was was listening to something this week that was talking about the Egyptian empire actually being the, the biggest and longest empire that ever existed and having a much bigger influence on Greece and Rome than we realize. And so that our last series about Egypt flows through to this series that it's all it's all empire and that um and it reminds me, what Josh was saying reminded me of something else I heard this week which is about Moses that the incredible revolution in Moses the alternate reality that he presented to Egypt started with him seeing the glory of God in a plant a simple plant just glowing with the glory of God and that that was the spark that ignited this whole new vision of of the cosmos. And, um, yeah, so that's what I was thinking about. It is. Um, I'll quick too, Seth. Um, mine was just let every heart prepare him room um, and or her room, whatever. But the, um, the, the, I just, the idea being that it takes time, but the pre- preparation, you both you have to kind of prepare for it, but also this isn't just something that's handed down, you just believe it. It's kind of um, people are wrangling with it. or if it's and, and it's also this fact that you need to see every, it's a very personal one, that like the others that sort of, it's going to flow all over and everyone else is going to be singing and it's all sort of flowing everywhere. Whereas this is kind of like every heart. So, you know, it doesn't work if, if a small bunch of people are going to do it. It needs to be that regardless, you're pre- preparing room to make something happen. Yeah, and, and, and that this is actually something we, yeah, as I said, we have to open our hearts to because, again, this is not our natural state in so many ways. Um, we resist this. <laughs> Last one. I'm not very good at saying no, as it turns out. Sorry. And I've got two. Um, <laughs> okay, the first one is this king metaphor that, that's just all through everything and I can't get on board with it. It just breaks 
at me so much every time I hear it, just like God as king. Because Shane, you're absolutely right. He's done the opposite. And I, I think it just shows how like there's something in us that just doesn't quite grasp this inversion raising up of Jesus um, and every time I see it I can't take it without feeling like I'm losing my grip um, and it's just got to keep going because I, I think we can do better like we need an alternative metaphor um, and I think we can for so many reasons yeah yeah um, the other thing sorry is that like the refrain of joy to the world is <laughs> I try. The refrain of this song is um, and heaven and nature sing. And that sounds to me like, um, yeah, like what Josh was saying about like the whole, it's not just about people, it's the entire, of the whole of creation that's supposed to reflect um, God's you know, goodness and wonder and everything. Um, and that weird third verse that I had never seen before, which we can't see at the moment, I think it, it was some reference to kind of the ground producing thorns and then God, you know, No, no more let sins and sorrows rain or thorns infest the ground. I can't remember the rest. Far as the curse is found. Is that a reference to like in in Genesis where after the people disobey God, then yeah, there it is. Um, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Like the curse that was laid on the ground that, you know, created order was disrupted and made bad and women got periods. Yep. And childbirth was painful and men had to work. Oh. So, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is why men can't have um, contraception. Anyway, <laughs> less politics, please. Um, but just, <laughs> but just this idea that um, that Jesus coming, God's incarnation, is supposed to start to correct that disruption of creation and set everything right again, and that's something that we are supposed to follow and follow Him and try and make things better. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So we're going to carry on with this next week because um, we, where we've got to today is that um, this, this revolutionary idea that God um, is not on the side of the powerful but of the neglected and marginalized, um, which leads into uh, the idea of um, human dignity and equality. Um, which, again, was profoundly, again, I don't think we even have the imagination to be able to understand how foreign that was to um, the people of the world at this time. Um, I have an amazing Nietzsche quote, um, which I'll post on Facebook instead of reading out because I feel like we've said enough and it's been, wonder- it's been wonderful. Um, but that this idea would transform us. We're going to participate in communion this morning. Um, going to have some juice and cracker. Um, to ingest and participate in the life of God, um, in this amazing story of God taking the form of a slave, um, of the unkin coming to earth. Um, so I'm going to invite um, Damson to, oh, sorry, I'm going to invite Nat to read for us um, in just a moment, a blessing by Jane Richardson. But um, if we prepare ourselves for communion, um, you don't have to participate in this bit. If you choose not to, that's totally fine. You're more than welcome to stand with us. But um, we are just going to gather around this table um, and get communion, and then um, we'll hear a blessing, and then we'll eat and drink together. So please, crack those crackers. 
as you eat and drink, I also just want you to think about this idea of joy to the world and being a person in the world who is downtrodden, marginalized, um, and unseen, and the potential joy that this idea um, of God actually being for you, not against you, might bring. You hardly knew how hungry you were to be gathered in, to receive the welcome and invited you to enter. Entirely nothing of you found foreign or strange, nothing of your life that you were asked to leave behind or to carry in silence and shame. Tentative steps became settling in, leaning into the blessing that enfolded you, taking your place in the circle that stunned you with an unimaginable grace. You began to breathe again, to move without fear, to speak with abandon the words you carried in your bones that echoed in your being. You learnt to sing. But the deal with this blessing is that it will not leave you alone. It will not let you linger in safety, in status. The time will come when this blessing will ask you to leave. Not because it is tired of you, but because its desire for you to become the sanctuary that you have found to speak your word into the world, to tell what you have heard with your own ears, seen with your own eyes, known with your own heart, that you are a beloved, precious child of God. Beautiful to behold, and you are welcome more and more.